Well, good morning, Word of Grace. Great to see you all today. I I recognize we have actually had a lot of new people coming lately, so I just want to take just a moment to introduce myself. For those of you who do not know who I am, I'm Stephen Maris. I'm the interim pastor here, and you know, that's a season that we have just been a couple of weeks into, and I've Already, it's just been such an honor and a privilege, and I'm humbled by the opportunity to do that. The last eight and a half years for my family in this church uh, has been incredible, and I'm thankful. You know, God is still doing some pretty awesome and exciting things in our church, amen? Um, With lots of new people coming. We had baptisms that were going to be taking place last week, and we had a hole in the tank, so we've got that fixed. We've got that new baptism coming up, but God is doing... A lot of incredible things, a lot of exciting things, and it's fun and humbling uh, to be a part and to serve God with all of you. You know, um, we have uh, another transition coming up in the month of June with Pastor Keith and Cassie. Um, In case you didn't realize and hadn't connected the dots between last names and stuff with our awareness that Pastor Keith is transitioning in June, uh, moving back to Arkansas as well as his wife, Cassie, if you haven't drawn that connection, is the director of our kids' wing. And so she has done an absolutely incredible job. I mean incredible job building up that department, building up that entire kids' wing, and really setting up a great system and team and individuals in place to keep it running strong through the interim season. And one thing that has been just overwhelming to me in a positive way, a, a, a good overwhelming thing, is the amount of voices, the amount of you who have either come up to me and said or text or email or messaged or something along the lines of, hey, anything I can do, let me know if there's anything I can do. If there's a, a need that arises or if there's somewhere I can help, if there's something I can do. I have heard that more in the last two months than, than in my whole life probably And that is an incredible testimony to the faithfulness of God to work in the hearts of this local church family to be knit together in love, to link arms together, and to go, we're a family, we're in this together, let's stay together and move forward strong in Christ, amen? And so with that in mind, one area that we could use some more help with, another opportunity is within that kid's wing. Right now, we've been having those services only at 1045, and that's primarily been because of the size of the volunteer teams that are available. And so coming up into this interim transition with the Knicks' transitioning out in the, in the coming months, um, that is something that we could use a little more help in in those classrooms. So if you have the willingness and the right gifting to be able to serve in that kids' wing. I'm not asking everyone to, because some of y'all should not be in there. <laughs> Just saying. No. I, okay, I kid, I kid. All right. But some of you can, and some of you have the capacity. And some of you, I'm just going to ask that you would at least pray. That's all I'm going to ask is that you would at least pray and set your willing heart before the Lord to say, Lord, would, are, would you require this of me? Lord, would you ask me to serve and help with this need? Um, One reason to help keep things strong and smooth throughout that transition until we get our new kids director put in place in the coming days, in the coming months. Um, And then also so that we can build towards our hope, our desire, our goal is that we could have kids, uh, Grace Kids fully open by the time school launches in the fall. 
And so that's another thing that this will help us accomplish so that those of you who come to the 845 service could have that available to you and your family and your kids as well. Does that sound like a good thing? Amen. So let's just at least pray about that, uh, consider that, and ask yourself if the Lord is asking you to step up in that way. Amen. Thank you so much. We are in week two of our series, Remodeling talking about the home, talking about the family. Last week, we talked about the foundation of the family per God's design is that the family was meant to serve God and show forth his glory into the earth. Um, If you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn so you can get there to Matthew chapter 22. That's where we're going to be reading in just a moment. As you've heard already, and you're probably going to get tired of hearing about my family and stories with my daughters, Sorry, that's where I draw a lot of inspiration and, and, and uh, metaphors from. I have two girls, Marley is four and Jojo is two, and Marley was and is and has been the easiest child on the face of the earth, just easy. And, and hearing stories from some other parents of some difficulties that they faced raising their kids, uh, Katie and I would just look at Marley and we were just going like, man... We have not experienced that. Uh, Thank you, Lord. (laughs) By the grace of God, she has just been the easiest kid. And it's funny, when uh, when we got pregnant, okay, she got pregnant. (laughs) Uh, When she was carrying JoJo, I said, you know, honey, I'm a little nervous. And she's like, why? I said, because Marley's just been so easy. It's not, not that she's been without difficulty or not that she's been perfect by any means. We've had our challenges and our obstacles with her. But she's just been so easy that I just feel like there's no way we're going to hit the jackpot twice in a row. I feel like we need to buckle up. And uh, in August, two years ago, man, were my fears realized. <laughs> she, JoJo has no middle. She's like this pendulum just rockets back and forth between the most sweet, adorable, melt-your-heart, affectionate, tender, just all cute adorableness I know I sound like dad right now, to the other end of the pendulum that is just like terrorist, (laughs) that just, wow, the fact that both ends of that spectrum could be so strongly present in one individual that's like this big is amazing. And it's funny, every single one of us who have parented Um, have had those moments where the frustration gets to you and you react in a way um, or respond in a way that in hindsight you go, ah, that was too much or that was over the top or I went too far or I reacted out of emotion. And hopefully by the grace of God, we could be repentant to our children. That's really important. Um, And so uh, one day, you know, your children are always watching. And so one day... Marley and Joey are playing, and Marley, uh, Joey is being really strong with just doing things that Marley didn't want, trying to make her play in ways that she didn't want, and knocking over her things. And Marley goes, Joey, come on. And when she did that, I went, oh, yuck. (laughs) Have you ever been online in social media where someone, you see so-and-so tagged you in a picture And you're like, oh, snap, I better go look at this to see what I look like. Let's be real. That's the first thought you probably have. And you go and look, and you're like, oh, that's a terrible picture of me. And sometimes in these moments, we see in our kids things that make us go, oh, that's a bad picture of me. 
right? Because what we really need to acknowledge is that our kids get way more, way more from us by what we do than by what we say. And this is really why I think we need to crucify the statement of do as I say, not as I do. You got to be kidding me. That's not something that is going to work. I remember hearing that from a friend. Uh, I was over at a friend's house one time when I was growing up, and his dad said that. And I'm like, how are we supposed to, how can you tell us to, I'm just drawing a blank here, because the truth is that modeling and showing our family, showing our kids, and not only our family, but our coworkers, our friends, our associations, those whom we're around, what we do is going to matter way, way, way more, infinitely more than what we say. Matthew chapter 22, before we start reading, let me set a little context for you. This is actually what we're about to read is on Tuesday of Holy Week. So this is the Tuesday before Jesus goes to the cross. This is after he's gone into the temple and seen everybody selling and trading, and he just goes in and he, he flips tables and he's yelling at everybody, how dare you do this? And he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. This is after that. And he stays in the temple, and he's teaching. And at this point, the, Fadu- the, the Fadducees, <laughs> that's a combination of Pharisees and Sadducees. If they became friends, <laughs> it would have been a new sect. That's fun, the Fadducees. Maybe it could be something we could start. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were two different political sects of Judaism of the day, if you will, which each of them having variations of their own beliefs and different ways that they viewed scripture, they were both vying for power and both of them hated Jesus because Jesus came in and really over time was revealing and exposing that they don't have a heart after God, that their heart is all about themselves. And so they didn't like Jesus. At this point where we're about to read, they are over Jesus. They're like done with him. And this, again, is Tuesday before Good Friday, where we're about to read. And they have been trying to trick Jesus in the, in the temple as everyone's there and talking, and, uh, and Jesus is teaching. And over and over, one by one, it's like the groups were taking turns, trying to deal death blows to Jesus, trying to get him to mess up, trying to get him to make a mistake so they could have an excuse to kill him. And so with that in mind, Luke, or Matthew 22 and verse 34, we'll start reading. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I'll pause right there for a moment. But So the guy's trying to trick Jesus, and he says, if I ask him what's the most important commandment, maybe he'll answer wrong, and we can make him look dumb in front of everybody. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, as God in the flesh, okay, you want to know what the most important commandment is? Simple. Love God with everything you've got. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say, where all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. What does that mean? He's saying, if you love God with everything you've got, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need all the other laws to tell you how to behave and what to do. For example, if you love God with everything you've got, 
you don't need another law to tell you not to take his name in vain. Because if you love him with all your heart, you won't do that. If you love God with all your heart, you don't need another law to tell you not to have any other gods before him. Because if you love him with all your heart, you won't do that. And the second being like it, the love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need another law to tell you don't steal from your neighbor, right? Because you're not going to do that if you love your neighbor. You don't need another law to tell you don't commit adultery because you won't do that to your neighbor because you love your neighbor. That if you love God with everything you've got, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, this is the whole essence of what God wants from us. That we love him first and foremost, and that that love for him overflows into loving everyone else the same way that we would love ourselves. And so Jesus is teaching this. He goes on in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? So he's, he's turning it now. He's tired of their questions. He's going to ask them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David. And he said to them, well, how, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And he's quoting David in the Old Testament there. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions because this was backfiring big time and they realized we're not going to win this way. Jesus is actually making all of us look really dumb. We should probably stop. Chapter 23 and verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do... And observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Today we have a connotation and an understanding of what that word hypocrites means. Back then it was quite literally actors is what that term meant. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're actors. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I'm sure everybody's going amen really strong at this point. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. 
For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and, and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You can pass the offering bucket at that point, right? It's quite clear Jesus was not interested in making people happy. Jesus is there, and these people are in the room. It's like I knew all of your jobs, and one by one I called out your job and then said, you hypocrites, like he's putting these people on blast in a way that they're just sitting there going, like he's calling them out by name, by title, and just going through this gauntlet list of ways that they act righteous and they try and prove to everyone else that they're awesome when really internally, he said, you've got dead man's bones inside. You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look beautiful and look adorned, but on the inside, you're dead. You care so much about cleaning the outside of the plate and the outside of the cup so that it looks nice and clean, but on the inside, the cup, it's filthy. You should focus a lot more on making sure the inside of the cup is clean, that the whole cup might be clean. See, before we disciple our families, we must first be disciples. Before we disciple our families, we must first be disciples. It should go without saying that if you want to model following Christ to your family and to others, you must actually be following Christ. We shouldn't have to say that, but it goes without saying, and we need to say it still sometimes. See, it's hard to teach someone how to swim when you're drowning. It's like, yeah, that's a good stroke. (laughs) Like, you can't teach well when you're drowning. You can't teach someone else how to swim. And so many times, people have tried to teach godliness and teach Christian values and all that to their family, to their kids, to their coworkers or whatever, when they're not living it themselves. And what they're doing is they're being so concerned about the outside of the cup, the the way their family looks. And people, how many times have people been away from the Lord and then they they have kids and then they start coming to church and they want to put their kids in kids' church. And and, and I don't don't condemn, listen, don't take any of this condemnation as condemnation. The the love of Christ draws us in. And so how many times though people go, "I, I want my kids to be good Christian kids. I want my kids to have good morals and good values, so we'll go to church and and let the church, you know, do that for them while modeling something completely different at home. And not only at home, but out out and about. The way that you interact 
the way that you treat, the things that you say while that person cuts you off driving, the way that you respond when the waitress has a bad attitude and it's taken a long time to get your food. Your kids, your family, see those things. And you can sit there for, for hours and hours lecturing and teaching your family godly morals, godly values, what the Bible says, how we're supposed to do. But unless they see you do it, it'll be null and void. If we want to disciple our families, we must first be disciples ourselves. All of us have probably heard Proverbs 22 and 6 where it says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. I love this Charles Spurgeon quote. He says, train up a child in the way he should go, but make sure you go that way yourself. Train up a child in the way that they should go, but make sure you go that way yourself. See, caring for your own soul is the first imperative. If any of you have ever flown on a plane, you've seen this illustrated. When the flight attendants come, and they're like, all right, everyone, in case of an emergency, exits are located to the rear and to the side and on the wings here and all that two-finger pointing that they do. And the buckles, and they clip it this way. And then they get to the point where they say what? And should the cabin depressurize, masks will fall from the ceiling. And then what? Make sure you put the mask on yourself first before helping someone else. Why? Because you cannot help someone else if you're incapacitated. If you become unconscious, you can't help someone else. And Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees are running through the plane trying to get everyone else's masks on when they have no oxygen, they have no life, they are spiritually dead. And we have these hopes, these ambitions, these dreams, these pictures of what our family could be and what our family should be. And we try and teach and go, you know, the Bible says, and let's memorize these verses. And let's, uh, you know, kids, uh, here's a great opportunity to teach you a good moral lesson. And we should do all of that. But not at the expense of prioritizing and elevating above the teaching the call to model, to live this stuff to actually live it out. We just read that first passage where Jesus is talking to them about the first commandment, that we would love the Lord, the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our mind, with everything we've got. This is the bedrock, the heartbeat of your ability to do this right. It all comes out of a love for God. Why is that? Because all of us know what we're supposed to do. All of us know how we should live. All of us, even uh, the opening chapters of Romans explains that everyone, even without the law of God, by their conscience and observing creation, knows that there is a God and by their conscience agrees with the law. And so every single one of us knows how we should live, but knowledge is not what helps us live that way. Because our due, our due, comes out of what we love, not out of what we know. Your do comes from what you love, not from what you know. This is evident in all of our dietary habits, because all of us know we all have the knowledge necessary to have nice slim waistlines and to have low percentage of body fat. All of us have that knowledge. Few of us have that want, right? Few of us love living healthy or what it takes to live healthy 
And all of us know what happens when we eat the donuts, but it doesn't stop us from eating the donuts. Why? Because of what we love. We love the taste. We love that momentary pleasure that hits the lips and the tongue. And I love donuts, so I'm not up here saying anything about anyone else. But our love is what motivates what we do more than what we know. So what's more important to your family? You want to do what's best for your family? Pursue loving God. Because see, what we try and do is when we have situations or issues in our family where we feel like things are out of whack or things are misplaced or we have these issues and how can we get some counseling or some education or some knowledge or some videos or, or some training on how to fix said issue, I can attest to my own in my own life, the times my family is the healthiest, my marriage is the healthiest, my parenting is the healthiest, my career, my work life, my job, my focus, the times that I am the best husband and father and employee, all of that, the best friend, all of it comes out of times when I'm pursuing Jesus Christ above everything else in my life. Amen. And what we do is we go, I'm sucking as a spouse right now, so let me work hard on that. And, and that's good. You know, there are good resources out there. I'm not saying that those are bad. You should use resources that are available. Instead, what we're trying to do there is clean the outside of the cup rather than addressing the inside of the cup. And if, what, what is a healthy marriage? A healthy marriage is two people who are pursuing Jesus Christ as individuals with everything they've got. And that one flesh is glorifying God by pursuing Jesus Christ with everything that one flesh has got. And those kids grow up seeing their parents reading the Bible, seeing their parents praying, seeing their parents loving one another. You do from what you love. Let's go to John chapter 13. This is a little later in the week. This is Thursday night of Holy Week. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. John chapter 13. This is after all that scene of what we read where Jesus is calling out the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And now he's coming to have this one last time moment, special intimate time with his disciples before he goes to the cross. So he's in the upper room with his disciples. <clears throat> Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Let's pause there for a moment. Sometimes we'll skim past and read really quickly without noticing the intentionality of verse 3 being there. Jesus knowing He's fully aware, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, knowing he had all authority. He's aware of this. He knows this. He knows he's the top dog and that he had come from God. He knows who he is. 
and was going back to God. He knows where he's going. Jesus is fully aware of who he is, the authority he has, the sovereignty in place. He knows all this and mindful of that. I love that this is put there right before he does this act of humility. It says, knowing, knowing that he had all the authority and that he came from God and that he's going back to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Saying you're too great to wash my feet is what Peter was trying to say here. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, well, Lord, not, not only my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He's trying to over-spiritualize it now. He's trying to, to one-up Jesus in a sense here. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And many scholars here think that Jesus was trying to teach about, about salvation, that the person who has been saved doesn't need to keep getting saved over and over again, but there is the need to confess our sins that we commit after we are saved. Um, and you are clean, but not every one of you. He's referring to, to Judas there, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for, I, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, he's saying, if the top dog has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. For I have given you an example. For I have given you an example that you should do just, or you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And we'll stop reading right there. Jesus, knowing who he is, everything that he has right to, knowing where he's come from, knowing where he's going, humbles himself, takes up the role of servant. And this is something that was kept for the lowest of servants, to wash someone's feet. Back in that day was a low man on the totem pole role. And Jesus takes that lowest role, and washes his disciples' feet. And Peter has his little debate with him. Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me do this. See, Jesus discipled through teaching and modeling. Jesus taught his disciples. If we went through the next four chapters, you would see Jesus teaching his disciples and then praying for his disciples. But right here, Jesus is saying, I'm giving you an example to follow. Jesus showed us there is no greater example for the Christian to follow. There is no greater individual who has, set, who has set out an example for us whereby we should look at and go, I want to be like that. 
The necessary thing, though, is that we must first do what we spoke about earlier and come to love for God. Because what we'll do is we'll go, oh, I want to be like that. And then we'll try of our own willpower to do it and we'll do good for a little while. We'll be inspired and do well. And then when that motivation fades, we inevitably fall back in. And this is whereby we need the grace of God to come in, open our eyes to our need for Christ, to see him as the ultimate treasure of all existence, to pursue him, to fall in love with him, to see him as that treasure. And in that, we want to be with him. This is where uh, Paul told the church in Corinth where he said, um, in beholding God that we are transformed, seeing his image from glory to glory into the image of God. And so more and more, the more that we behold Jesus Christ, the more that we are transformed into his image. We think that we're gonna grow into this stuff. We think that we're gonna grow into maturity just by learning the knowledge and just by learning how we're supposed to live as Christians. And that does not transform us. It, it informs us and it calls us and it challenges us, but it doesn't change us. What changes us is beholding Christ seeing him for who he is, seeing how wonderful he is, believing in who he is, and the Holy Spirit coming in and transforming us into a new creation. Jesus discipled through teaching and through modeling. We can see this also emulated in the apostles as they went on after Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, there's three verses here I just want to point out real quick. Ephesians 5.1, the apostle Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus. He says, therefore be imitators of God as what? As beloved children. Any parent in the room, you know you've seen that point where your kid does something and you know they did it just because you did it. Or even in the moment where you're doing something where so I'll be goofy and silly with my girls and I'll get up and dance. And what happens? They try and do the exact same moves I'm doing. Doesn't matter if they have their own dance they were doing before, which would always look ridiculous. When I get up and I do something, they're going to copy me and emulate me. And Paul is saying, be imitators of God as little children, looking to the parent and going, I want to be like that. The Apostle John in 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Talking about Jesus. That if we say that we're in fellowship with him, if we say that he's in us, if we say that we abide in Christ, then we ought to be walking in the same way in which he walked. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. This verse, especially to parents and to family members of, uh, and to any type of relationship where you're trying to use influence and where you're trying to make an eternal impact in the life of, of those whom God has brought into your life by whatever relationship, more so than your ability to teach them, more so than your ability to tell them, it is important that you show them. Amen? It is important that we are imitators of Christ. There is no single more important calling than that of pursuing Christ. It's our bottom line this week. Because anytime we have a series or a teaching or books where we're trying to fix the home, rebuild the home, where we're trying to repair family issues or do anything like that, we tend to try and just find out what are the 10 steps to fix our issues. 
And we're placing our hope and our faith in a desired outcome through desired paths while neglecting what really is the root that causes all the issues or fixes all the issues. If I'm being a crummy husband, it's probably because I'm not in close proximity and relationship with the Lord where I'm pursuing him, feeding myself on his word, feeding my spirit, spending time in prayer. Therefore, I become spiritually weak, which means I become fleshly strong and which makes me become lazy and selfish. And that's where that stuff comes into the marriage. That's where that stuff comes into my parenting. That's where that stuff comes into my career. That's where that stuff comes into my relationship with my peers. All these relational problems are a result of sin, fallen human beings. And if we want to be the best version of ourselves in those things, it comes by going, I don't need to focus on trying to be the best version of myself in those things. I need to focus on pursuing Christ above everything else. You want to see dividends in all these areas of your lives? Let me put a challenge out there for you. Prioritize reading scripture for an hour a day, at least five days a week, and see what happens in your life. Not reading the books that teach you the steps on how to fix your marriage or how to fix your your parenting issues or your family issues or how to be a better this or how to be a better that. You want to see fruit in your life? Prioritize ingesting the word of God into your spirit and watch it transform you. And also at the same time, some of you might find that it also opens your eyes in ways you hadn't seen. In fact, all of us will see that. But some of you might find, oh, actually I'm realizing the whole problem is that I'm sitting here washing the outside of the cup and haven't even come to the realization that my inside is dirty and I don't even know Christ. I've been doing all the church motions and I've been going through all the religious check marks and doing all these things and I'm trying to be something that I'm actually not. And we haven't taken care of the first internal issues. And if you have, have you drifted to where that's not the focus anymore because you've got that check mark done. And so now I'm going to focus on all these different knowledges and all these different things that can help equip me to fix my marriage and fix my family. You want what's best for your kids? Train yourself in godliness. You want what's best for your marriage? Train yourself in godliness. You want what's best for your career? Train yourself in godliness. You want best for your friend relationships? Train yourself in godliness. This is the, one of the calls that Paul gave to Timothy, saying train yourself in godliness. We cannot get the cart before the horse. This, I'm telling you, if parents, if husbands and wives, if individuals can pursue Jesus Christ above all else by prioritizing the word of God, prioritizing prayer and seeking God, it will overflow into all these other areas. See, modeling and living a lifestyle of faithful devotion to Christ will go infinitely further. Modeling the lifestyle will go infinitely further than all the lectures about beliefs and life lessons you could try and teach. Modeling it will go infinitely further than all the lectures lectures and life lessons you could teach your kids. And like that one time when I saw Marley model me and the way that she responded to her sister 
and she modeled my sin of overreacting. Sometimes there's times where I go, I want that apple to fall as far from the tree as possible. But when that happens, when we realize we have sinned against our kids, against our spouses, against our family, the modeling, one of the things that's most important is being quick to call out our sin and quick to repent to those whom we sin against. If I overreact, if I overexert myself, if I, if I lie, if I, if I am selfish or lazy, this happened last week, last week for me. My wife had to call me out. And she said, how come you only want to help around the house when I ask you to or when I show you that I'm frustrated and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that? But she's right. She confronted my sinful laziness. And I come home and I try and go, you know, I've had a full day at work. I I deserve sitting down for a minute. I would never say that, but I believe it. I'd never say that, but I believe it. I've convinced myself that that's true. And so it was a day full of meetings and I'm stressed out and blah, 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 or whatever. And I try and make excuses for my selfishness, for my laziness. And she called me out last week on it. And for about 20 minutes, I went downstairs and I started cleaning up stuff and putting my clothes away. I'm going to do this and do that. And start trying to go, well, she's not thinking about this. And, and how come blah, blah, blah. And for 20 minutes, I'm preaching to myself out of sin. And by the grace of God, thankfully, God confronted me and made me go, nope, nope. She's right. She's right. And I need to go upstairs and I need to repent. Because guess what? There are no people in your life who are more acquainted with your sin than your family. And therefore, there are no people who are more prone to have the ability to potentially see the Pharisee in you than your family, which is why we need to crucify that Pharisee and call it out when it's there. You want your kids to see faithful lifestyle of obedience and pursuing of Christ, be willing to go, I messed up. You want your spouse to be able to look over your sin, be willing to confront it and call it out for what it is, sin, and then repent. And let me say one thing beyond that. When your spouse, your family member, your child, or whomever comes to you in repentance, please, please, please don't turn it into a lecture. They're coming from a place of repentance. Don't go, well, you know, since you said that, you, no, 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 no. Welcome that repentance and grace. Otherwise, you, you stifle it. Because people aren't going to want to come and repent to someone who just turns every opportunity for repentance into a lecture. Come to it with grace, forgiveness, understanding, and love. A major factor that, uh, of faithfully modeling will be your ability to repent quickly, easily, and thoroughly. We mess up, guys. Let's be quick to point it out, quick to repent. Your family does not need a perfect you. They need to know how their imperfect family can know and follow their perfect Heavenly Father. We don't need to be perfect. We can't be perfect. And our families don't need a perfect version of us. What we need is our imperfect family to be able to see how we can rely on the perfect Heavenly Father. I hope and prayers that all of us 
could accept the primary call of God to pursue Christ as the highest reward worthy of our highest affections, our highest efforts, and as we seek him and find him and taste and see that he is good and delight in him and find joy in him and count the cost of following him and live sacrificially in order to follow him and serve others out of the example he set for us and serve others out of a desire to see others come and taste and see. That's really what it's all about. It's not about teaching other people how to behave. It's about inviting others to taste and see that the Lord is good because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We're just like that patron who's saying, have you been to that restaurant? They've got the best steak around. You've got to go try it. And our lifestyle to our families, we ought to be saying, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Because I have. And I want you to see that in my, in my, in my life. In my decisions, does my life show that I've tasted that the Lord is good? Have I tasted that the Lord is good? Or am I just trying to polish the outside of the tomb and make sure everyone else thinks that the Maris family's got it all together? And we place this expectation and this burden on our family that they cannot lift, they cannot fulfill. And the pressure to keep those faces up and to maintain face hinders us in our ability to be authentic, sincere, and repentant and tasting in the Lord's goodness, which points back to his perfection, not ours. And we can go, you know what? My family's messed up because we're sinners in need of a savior. And it's by the grace of God that we could love each other. It's by the grace of God that we could forgive each other. It's by the grace of God that we could look past one another's faults. It's by the grace of God that we could serve one another faithfully. It's by the grace of God that we could get over our selfishness. It's by the grace of God that we could humble ourselves as Christ did. All by the grace of God, which means you must taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to present an invitation to our children, our spouses, our parents, our extended family, our peers, our classmates. One, that Christ is worthy of our lives, and two, what it looks like to give your life to service in him, or to serve him and show forth his glory into the world. Father, I thank you. That title that you've given yourself and made available to us that we could call you Father, there is so much teaching in that. You have shown us the relationship that you want to have with us is that of a loving and faithful Father. And even though we have flawed pictures of fathers in our world, we can see you, God, as the perfect father who loves without condition, who forgives without holding things against us, who welcomes us in even though we were offensive to you. God, I pray that you would allow us by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit to model you and I pray that if there's anyone here or anyone watching online that has not tasted that you are good, I ask that you would draw by your Holy Spirit and that you would allow us to taste in your goodness, that you would allow us to come to repentance, confessing our sin, recognizing every single one of us have sin. Stop trying to take the glory on ourselves by being good and looking good, 
let us address the inside of the cup that we would pursue loving and knowing you above all else, knowing that that would ripple out into every relationship in our lives. God, help us not to be like the Pharisees who know how to say all the right stuff but don't live it out. But God, I ask that as we taste you and your goodness and your faithfulness and your love and your grace and your mercy, all that you are, that you would transform us to where we live it out, out of love in our hearts for you in a way that is an example and a model to everyone else in our lives. That our lives would be an invitation to others to also go taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.